Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, good morning. A uh, quick shout out to all those, all you folks that are out there across the United States that are suffering from various weather challenges. It sounds like various places have had uh, disastrous effects, and I just wish everybody well and, and hope everybody's safe. Um, and I have uh, my guest today who is waiting in the wings here. Before I talk to you about him, uh, I want to tell you about the upcoming conference for NALI, National Association of Legal Investigators, July 18th and 19th at the Doubletree Hotel, Philadelphia. It's going to be a great conference. Check it out on the NALI website, um, National Association of Legal Investigators. Check it out on Google, and I'm sure you'll be very pleased, if you, particularly if you're an investigator and uh, are interested in either criminal defense or plaintiff personal injury kinds of cases. And so one of the people that are, is a member of that association, where I am also, is my guest, Ellis Armistead. Hi, Ellis. Hi, Francie. Thanks for being on the show. Ellis is calling in from Colorado, I think, right? You're in Colorado? I am today, yes. <laughs> yeah, I am today. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's why I said I think. Um so, uh, Ellis, I'm very excited to have Ellis. Ellis is um, known Ellis for a, a number of years, and he is probably one of the premier capital case investigators in the country. And I'm very happy to have him on the show. I think at last count, I counted about 11 death penalty cases, Ellis, but I, I think you've been involved in a lot more than that. Is that true? Some, yeah, uh, to one degree or another. Some of them uh, my staff was involved in, and I was kind of advising, and some of them I was involved in directly, you know. Yeah, so uh, for those of you that are not investigators and those of you that are investigators and have never done a capital case or a very serious criminal case, capital cases are probably the most wearing, the most subject to burnout to uh, just all kinds of emotional issues that that we as investigators have to deal with, not only personally, but with our clients and our attorney clients. Is that correct, Alice? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's very trying, and as um, you can imagine, they often go on for years, uh, many years. I'm not only at the uh, pre-trial level, but the trials are long, and then the appeals are long, and the, if the person gets convicted uh, to death, they're on death row, and it never stops. So um, I applaud Ellis because this is really, really, really difficult, challenging work. And he is going to talk about one of the um, worst 
disasters in United States history. It was one of the first uh, homegrown terrorist attacks in the country, the Oklahoma bombing. So, Ellis, before we get into that, let's just talk a little bit about your background, because I, you were with the district attorney's office originally, is that correct, in Colorado? Well, I started uh, out of college in Alabama with the Decatur, Alabama Police Department. Uh, I was the first uh, person with a college education on the police department. Wow. Uh, I was recruited out to uh, Lakewood, Colorado, uh, and then I went to the district attorney's office in the 14th Judicial District, which is the northwest uh, part of the state. I did uh, northwest quadrant of the state. I did about 17 years in law enforcement before going out on my own. Now, um, th- th- when you say that that's the northwest part of Colorado, what does that include? Does that include Denver? No, Winter Park, Steamboat, Craig, okay. Jackson, up in the mountains. Okay. okay, all right. And then then you worked for a little while at the coroner's office, is that right? I did, part-time, uh, up in, the, in Route County, Colorado. Uh, just because of my background and in uh, death and homicide investigations when I was here in Denver, they asked me to help out. And then what made you decide to go into private practice? Well, at the time, the person I was working for, the district attorney, uh, was not going to run for re-election. And to be very honest with you, the uh, county commissioners of the three counties uh, didn't want to pay me <laughs> really? what I needed. So I I just said, I'm going out on my own. And, uh, and then there had been one kind of traumatic event leading up to that that I just felt for my own well-being, it was uh, better to uh, move on. Well, I can't let that go, Ellis. Traumatic event. Do you want to explain that, or do you want to leave it alone? Yeah, we had a no, no. We had a murder case uh, in Moffat County, Colorado, where a fellow uh, murdered a family and uh, of three, husband and wife, and an eighteen-month-old, and dumped them in a ditch mm. outside of town and covered them with garbage. Mm. Uh, they were discovered, and uh, that night or the next night, I forget which one, I was at the morgue, and I was holding this 18-month-old with a contact uh, gunshot wound to the back of his head, mm. and uh, I just said to myself, I, I was about 40 years old at the time, and I said, I just about had enough of this. I had been working death investigations since I was approximately 26, I think. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. So, so it's kind of uh, interesting that you actually ended up specially, specializing in death cases. Well, I didn't mean to. Uh, 
Okay. The, uh, I, I thought I was going out and uh, having a lot of fun, uh, but uh, because I had been around Denver for so long, uh, the I quickly became or quickly started getting calls from uh, defense attorneys who knew me from having cross-examined me or whatever on various murder cases here in the metro area uh, to come work for them on uh, uh, on murder cases and then eventually turned into capital cases. Uh, The first murder case I worked was the murder of a state patrolman, Hmm. which was uh, very difficult having just come out of law enforcement. So how do you do you, how do you square that, Ellis, when you're in law enforcement as you were, you know, deep in the law enforcement culture and then you're actually investigating the murder of a police officer? Well, I believe even when I was a police officer that everyone deserved a fair chance. I didn't believe that I was infallible. Uh nor were any of the people that I worked with. There was always a chance of a mistake. And uh, I always kind of kept that in mind. And particularly when I went out on my own, I mean, there were a lot of police officers who uh, were fairly critical, colleagues saying you've gone to quote-unquote dark side. Mm-hmm. And... My general response to them was, you know, if you do your job right, odds of me or my our side, the attorneys losing, are pretty high. But if you take shortcuts and you screw up, mm-hmm. that's when you lose. I, you know, and. And that's been my mantra as well. It, it, you know, if everybody's doing their job, the chips will fall where they're going to fall. But that, that's all that's I exactly, care about. Yeah. I'm sorry, what? That's all I care about. Is yeah. That it's done correctly and the chips fall where they may. But when people try to manipulate things because of their own agenda for whatever reason that is, uh, whether whether it's either side, no matter what, the, whether it's the police police officers that are doing the investigation, the investigators, whether it's the district attorney's office, or whether it's the defense attorney, defense investigators, no matter who's doing it, if if you're trying to manipulate it, it's going to contaminate the case. Absolutely. Well, I highly respect Ellis for all of you out there that. Uh, that uh, haven't met him personally. Uh, he's just a great investigator, and he's done cases such as the John Bonnie Ramsey case. He was heavily involved in that. And, uh, of course, the Columbine shooter, Eric Harris. I know these sound like cases that nobody would want to touch, but Ellis is right. Everybody's entitled, according to our Constitution, a fair trial. Not necessarily that we always have them, but they're entitled to that. And we investigators that are worth their weight in gold and uh, attorneys that are worth their salt will make sure that happens. So today, though, we are talking about the Oklahoma bombing 
And Ellis, um, tell us who you represented. I worked uh, for Timothy McVeigh and his lawyers on his appeal after he was convicted at trial and stayed on the case up to his execution. So that's, you know, that's another um, burnout area is when uh, somebody you've worked on a case with is actually executed, isn't it? I've had two of them, McVeigh and one other, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a huge factor in burnout, I think. Did, it, did you feel yes, that way? it can be, if you, if you, if you let it. Yeah. You know, one of the attorneys I worked with on the, the first client I had that was executed argued in the Tenth Circuit the next morning, and he said, you know, you have to get back on the horse or you're no good to the next person. So I've always kind of kept that in mind, too. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, the Oklahoma case. Now, that was the uh, Alfred P. Murrow uh, Federal Building, as all of you are probably aware. Some of you are younger, maybe don't remember it. It was 1995. Um, one of the... One of the worst things about it was that there was a child care center, and many of those children were also killed. Um, so, and there were two defendants, Timothy McVeigh, represented by uh, Ellis's attorney, and Terry Nichols. Uh, so, how did you get involved, Ellis? Well, I wasn't involved in the initial part of the case. I was involved after McVeigh was convicted, and he got new appellate attorneys. Uh, And so I worked with McVeigh for probably two, two and a half years after his conviction leading up to his execution in 2001. Uh, and so the or- original trial attorney was Stephen Jones? Correct, yeah. So uh, in this case, uh, there were not two attorneys working on the capital case? There were attorneys, Dennis Hartley, Nathan Chambers, and Rob Nye uh, were the primary attorneys on the appellate case. On the appellate Nye case? Had been, Rob Nye has... Uh, uh, was also on the original case. Hartley oh, okay. and Chambers were not. So, uh, again, for those of you who are listening and uh, don't know a lot about capital cases, there's usually, in many states, I should say, not all states probably, uh, in many states there's two attorneys. There's one that handles the, the guilt phase of the case and then there's one that handles the penalty phase of the case. Of the case. Um, is that the way it worked with Stephen Jones and Rob Nye? You know, not really. Uh, Mr. Jones chose not really to put on a mitigation case, uh, which I found unusual at the time, but came later to understand uh, the more I got to know McVeigh and his family and the circumstances. To be honest with you, I didn't, other than the initial shock of the bombing and the trial being here in Denver, uh, 
transferred from Oklahoma to Denver. Uh, I didn't pay that much attention to it because I was involved in some other cases. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so, so you were retained by Hartley, Chambers, and Nye to do the appeal. Correct. And, and what, what was that arrangement? What did they want you to do? Well, part of it, uh, our, our first assignment was to get the discovery, and uh, I actually had employees uh, going back and forth weekly to Enid, Oklahoma, where Stephen Jones's office was. Uh, we had rented a copier, and they were copying the file. He didn't want to turn loose of the original file, so we had a, a massive job. I didn't, but some of the people that worked with me uh, spent weeks out there copying the file. And this hmm. is be- you have to remember, this is before everything was uh, digitized and so right. forth. <laughs> right. Yeah. So... Um- Okay, so you copied the file now, and then what did they want you to do specifically? To a degree to see if there was any mitigating circumstances uh, that would assist uh, McVeigh, if there had been any violations by the government, if there were other, there had always been rumors of. Uh, other suspects, co-conspirators, uh, rumors that the FBI had not done a thorough investigation. Uh, those rumors just went on and on. And it really boiled down to re-examining what went on uh, during the first trial and affirming that uh, it was handled correctly. Okay, so you were, so the the obvious one that you see right away is that there was no mitigation done. So, so you're very, looking very at... Very little, if any, yeah. Okay, and, and as we all know, that's usually part of of a capital case or a death penalty case that you're looking for areas that might humanize the person or, or have a reason for the way they, for them committing this horrible crime. Correct. Okay. So, so you said, though, an interesting comment that you found as you got involved in the case that uh, it, you could understand the attorney's theory. Well, I t- talked to Jones and, uh, uh, out in Enid, where his office is, and uh, uh, he kind of explained to me his theory uh, and uh, about not putting putting on little if no mitigation, and that he wanted it to be tried just on the facts, and and I think that was heavily influenced by. Uh, McVeigh also. I don't think McVeigh wanted any real mitigation investigation. Mm-hmm. What was what was McVeigh's demeanor? 
You know, he was one of the easiest clients I've ever had. Uh, unlike his public persona, uh, I would go to meet with him either when he was here in Colorado down at ADX, Administrative Maximum, or in Care Hall on Death Row, Care Hall, Indiana. Uh, he was always smiling, uh, unlike the, the famous picture of him, you know, with a uh, bulletproof jacket on, or leading him out of, I think, a courthouse in, in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, he always asked about my staff. He asked about my then ex-wife. Uh, he was the kind of guy. And I, I didn't feel I was being manipulated. I'm used to being, I'm pretty sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. He, you kind of saw what you got. And as long as we didn't discuss politics uh, or, you know, extremist views, I could have had him to dinner. Hmm. Once you got off on that track, it was all over, you know. Did you talk to him about uh, his motive and and why he did what he did and how he got involved with uh, Terry Nichols? Uh, I did. Not so much about his involvement with Terry Nichols, but it, it inevitably came up in our conversations, which... I had hours and hours of conversations with him. Uh, Generally toward the end, as I recall, he would start, I guess in my mind, trying to rationalize what had happened and what he'd done. He blamed most of it uh, on the government's actions in... uh, Ruby Ridge. Yeah, that's what I read. Idaho. Too. And uh, Waco, Texas. And he felt the government uh, acted unfairly. Now, that's, that's a broad brush uh, approach. He, he was much more detailed than that. Uh, you know, he was a Gulf War veteran. He was a sergeant in the Army. Yeah. He came back disillusioned with the army and the government and for whatever reason uh, got on this track that led to this tragedy. Let's let's back up a second uh, just to clarify. Ruby Ridge was a situation between the feds and Randy Weaver where they uh, attacked, the feds attacked the uh, cabin, the rural cabin and uh, a lot of people were killed. And and then Waco was the Branch Davidian religious sect by Waco, Texas. Uh, and that was another one where if if you're old enough to have been around during that time, then it, they the uh, feds uh, blew that place up too. It was on fire and a lot of people died there as well. So he, he had a... Uh profound dislike for Janet Reno, who had ordered the Waco mm-hmm. uh, 
action. And Janet Reno was the the attorney general at the time. Attorney general, U.S. attorney general, yes. Yeah, and so the the bombing was actually on the anniversary of that Waco siege, wasn't it? I believe it was, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so tell us what the two of them did. What, how did this come about, McVeigh and Nichols? Well, they uh, essentially made what would now be considered, and I, I even then I considered a fairly crude bomb out of... Uh, uh, fertilizer and some explosives, uh, similar to what they were, you would use to blow stumps up out on a farm. Mm-hmm. And loaded a, uh, McVeigh loaded a truck up, uh, fairly crude from my perspective, and I'm no bomb expert, but, uh, a fairly crude bomb. I drove it there. Why he didn't blow himself up in the process, <laughs> I don't mm. know. Uh, parked it in front of the building, got out, uh, walked away, was several blocks away when the truck went off. Um, I don't think that McVeigh realized he, and I'm not trying to make excuses for him mm-hmm. uh, he knew he was he, he meant to do damage he meant to hurt people he meant to kill people I don't think he realized the extent of the damage that this bomb would do or this truck bomb you know right yeah I mean it really blew off the entire front of the building um, yeah just it was amazing you know, a demolition contractor could hardly do that. Right, <laughs> Here's this true. guy with a load, load of fertilizer <laughs> and uh, some other chemicals, and it's just amazing. You know, it's, it's hard to get your head around, even somebody who's disgruntled with the government, why that, why that equals killing innocent civilians. <laughs> it's just, I mean, in this case... Um, I'm reading, uh, let's see, where, how many of people were, how many people was it? It was 100, 100, 168 people, 19 of them who were children in a daycare. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, granted, they probably didn't realize there was a daycare center there. I'm sure they didn't know that. No, but I don't nevertheless, think so. no. yeah. Nevertheless, I mean, uh, it's hard to imagine, and 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 as we know, this happens all the time now. This is a normal weekly occurrence where there's a, a shooting or a bombing or something where n- numbers of people are killed that have nothing to do with whatever the the claim, their misguided claim was. So right, yeah, yeah. So okay, so you set out to see if there's any mitigation and what what did you find? Well, we found very little mitigation. Uh, we found some leads that 
that had not been pursued. Uh, what ultimately uh, became a huge issue in the case was some Brady violations by the government, uh, which were discovered after McVeigh had already waived his appeal and there was an execution date set. Uh, but in between, there was a lot of conspiracy theories. Uh, there were I had people with conspiracy theories coming in my office to the point that we had to put not a burglar. We already had a burglar alarm, but a, a stick-up alarm at the front desk. And, mm. the, and the police came by, the Denver police came by quite frequently to check on us just because of these people that are attracted to these kind of tragedies and, and, and certainly not unique to McVeigh uh, can be kind of odd. I didn't feel any of them that I ran into were dangerous, but I wasn't in the office a lot. So your staff really felt threatened? To a degree, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Wow. Okay, so um, so what kind? Of, tell me what kinds of. Well, let me back up a second because I want to go back and address it. Can you explain, Ellis, what a Brady violation is? It's a violation when the government does not turn over uh, information in the case, particularly exculp- potentially exculpatory information. And what kind of information, information would you find? Information that would be favorable to the defendant in his case or her and, case. Okay. And in this case, what information had they failed to turn over that could have been significant? Uh, it turned out there were, as I recall, about 4,000 pages of FBI 302s, notes, that sort of thing uh, that were not turned over. Uh, I, I, I suspect more so out of negligence than purposely not turning them over. Hmm. And as it turned out, they were not of real, turned out not to be much. Yeah. So let me just say that 302s are the FBI investigation reports. Um, that's what they I'm call sorry. them. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Um, okay, so so you didn't find anything significant there, even though I'm I'm sure that was a a big issue at the time. I can imagine that caused a lot of uh, uh, quick action on the parts of the attorneys, furiously reading through everything they got. Um, Right. So tell me what you do then uh, to investigate post-conviction the mitigation you were looking for. Tell me the steps you were taking. Uh, We talked talked with his family. I met with his his dad, his sister, uh, talked with people that knew him, although there were not a lot of people who claimed to really know him. And and I think that may be true. I'm not sure anybody really knew him uh, on on a personal level. 
I don't know about Nichols, but uh, uh, what we came away with was a person that came back, like I stated earlier, from uh, from a war and with a uh, agenda. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he was brought up in a uh, uh, working uh, to middle-class home. His dad worked in, a, uh, in the auto factories up near Buffalo, New York. Uh, he, his mom, he and his, his dad and his mom were divorced, uh, when he was, uh, in high school. But there were nothing, there were no real significant incidents like we find in almost all these cases. And, and I'm sure you're familiar with them where there's been some type of trauma, mm-hmm. uh, abuse, uh, psychological, physical abuse. We didn't find that in Tim Mm -hmm. McVeigh. And Tim McVeigh didn't offer it. Tim McVeigh saw himself as a normal person. So how long long was he in the service? About? Yeah, I think two and a half, three years. Long enough to rise to the uh, rank of sergeant, but I don't know how long that took during those and, days. And he served in the Gulf War, correct? Yes. Uh-huh. So did the Gulf War impact him uh, and his ideology? Was that what what happened? I think so, yeah. Yeah, okay. I think that was pretty apparent. Uh, and, but he wasn't real forthcoming about it. I mean, I obviously look at that as one of the mitigating factors, but that can be pretty tough because there's many people that came back from the Gulf War right. that didn't blow up a federal building. Right. And did, was there any evidence of post-traumatic stress or anything like that with him? When I we did not have him tested. I think Jones may have, but there was there was not, or if it was, it was very mild. Hmm. And then, how did he connect up with Terry Nichols? Yeah, I don't remember the whole story. Uh, I think it was some through through some group, but to be honest with you, I didn't focus on Nichols very much. Yeah, after after they both were back in the States, after they were out of the service. Because wasn't Nichols in the yeah, service I, as I, well? Yeah. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember how they connected. Yeah. Okay. I think there was, a, there was a friend involved, and I forget his name, maybe through a mutual friend. Uh-huh. They became acquainted. Okay. And it's kind of like the perfect storm. They both were upset with the government, and they just probably started talking about what they could do to fix things. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, that's one way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, I, you know, I find it amazing that he was 
executed just two and a half years after he was convicted. That's, uh, well, you know, I'm in California, so <laughs> it, that sounds fast to me. Um, well, it is fast. Uh, uh, I have clients now who call me every weekend from death row, uh, either in Terre Haute or here in Colorado, who have been there 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but this was, this is what he wanted. I mean, mm-hmm. to be honest with you, he, he pulled the plug on his appeals against the advice of his attorneys. I see. Huh. And did, did you have any conversations with him about that? I did to a degree, uh, not legal conversations per se, but he said he didn't want to live in jail. He didn't want to live uh, uh, cooped up in a cell the rest of his life. I mean, he obviously wasn't going to be set free. Right. And uh, he, he, he was clear-headed. He had a clear vision, and he decided that uh, he wanted to be executed. And I think, to a degree, there may have been a ulterior motive, and it made him a martyr, also, mm, for whatever mm-hmm. the cause, whatever the cause was. So he wasn't uh, remorseful. One of the thing. Excuse me. He, he was not remorseful. No. Huh, interesting. He considered the children collateral damage. Mm-hmm. Alice, we're going to have to take a really quick break. Let's do that, and uh, we'll be right back uh, as soon as okay. uh, we pay the bills here. Thanks. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. 
Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Hey, I'm here talking with Ellis Armistead, who's a... Certified legal investigator, and and he's such a premier investigator that licensed investigator, by the way, in Colorado, uh, that he was the recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award for the Professional Private Investigators Association, Colorado. So this is somebody uh, that knows what he's talking about, and we're talking about the Timothy McVeigh defense, where Ellis was working on the appeal. For the Oklahoma uh, Alfred P. Murrow bombing uh, case, incident, I'm not sure what to call it. Disaster. How's that? Disaster. So, um, Ellis, you were just telling me off the line, off line here that um, Timothy asked you to be present at his execution. Tell us about that. Well, he... He didn't make a big deal of it. It just came up one time. Uh, I was kind of prepared for it because uh, a previous client had done that. And I just, uh, maybe it was selfishness on my part or a self-defense mechanism. But I chose not to follow up. Mm-hmm. And he never made an issue of it. And I don't remember, was the execution in Colorado? No, it was in Terre Haute at the uh, federal prison in Terre Haute, Indiana, okay. where uh, the federal death row is was and is currently located. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, that this is a federal case. Uh, uh Briefly, how do federal death penalty cases compare to state death penalty cases? They tend to move a little faster uh, from my perspective. Uh, There aren't, uh, the judges don't put up with a lot of uh, frivolous arguments, frivolous boilerplate motions. Mm. Uh, that you see in the state court. So things kind of move along, moved along. And I think to judge makes his uh, credit. He, he just died a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he handled this trial pretty well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so from the time you and McVeigh had this conversation and the time he was executed was how much time? Oh, at least six months. I mean, it was okay. always, I mean, it was a, the subject of execution. You couldn't avoid it. You knew it was out there. You, you, it was on the table and, and and probably going to happen. And 
I'd how, say nine months. Okay. How maybe. often did you see him? I don't know. Yeah. How often did you see him during that period of time? I would fly out to Terre Haute or to Indianapolis and then drive to Terre Haute, I think about every two weeks. Wow. And towards the end, a little more. That's a lot. And his attorneys were located where? His appellate attorneys. Here, uh, Rob Nye was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, Hartley was in Colorado Springs, and Chambers was in Denver. Mm. Okay, and then, so tell tell me about your feelings leading up to that execution, meeting with him that frequently. To, to a degree, I think I was a little numb in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hardest thing I had to do was they sent me to tell his father up in Buffalo that he was dropping his appeals and mm. it was going to be executed. And it was a snowy night. Uh, his father was one of the nicest guys I ever had known. He uh, welcomed me into his house. I, I, I cut right to it. I said, you know, Bill, Tim has decided to waive his appeals and he's going to be executed. He said, you know, Ellis, I loved my son, but I believe in the death penalty. Would you like a highball? Oh, wow. Meaning a drink. <laughs> mm. And I declined the drink, but I think I finished it off back at the hotel. <laughs> right. To me, to me, that was the hardest part. Now, were his mom and dad uh, still together? No, they divorced when he was in high school. So his dad was living alone uh, in a very simple house just outside of Buffalo. Uh, he gardened a lot. He, he was just, he, he was so nice. The FBI agents came, became protective of him and would run the press off when they were starting to bother him during, during this whole episode. I mean, he gave them vegetables from his garden, you know, to the agents. That's nice. Yeah, that's nice to hear. And, and then did you have to go contact his mother and his sister as well? No, I had, I had little or no contact with his mother I'm not sure I had any contact in retrospect. I did meet his sister, uh, but they were they stayed pretty well out of it. Mm-hmm. I know okay. that Tim did talk to Jennifer at times, but we had very little contact. My primary contact was his dad, Bill. Okay. How sad. Um, so... Fast forwarding to the execution, were you, even though you didn't watch the execution, were you there in the building that day? Well, just to back up, uh, we knew the first execution date was set on, um, I think, May, in the middle of May of 2001. Then there was a delay because of some of these uh, issues over the Brady violations, which we previously discussed. And then... Uh, 
the final execution. <laughs> Such a misnomer, but anyway, the execution was on June 11, 2001. Mm-hmm. I went out there several days prior to the execution. Uh, it, it was a bizarre scene as you drove into Terre Haute. There were electronic arrows with the words pro and something against or con, I forget the exact verbiage, pointing people in different directions of town. Oh, wow. Uh, all, all of the ho- hotels were full, and there were uh, these kind of like these sightseeing buses that you see making a circle between all the hotels and the uh, prison grounds that had been roped off to allow the public and the press mm-hmm. together. Hmm. So they put uh, the people that supported the death penalty on one side of town and the people who were against it on the other side of town. Well, that's what they were trying to do. I don't trying know how to. well it worked. Yeah. yeah. So then what was the process? You, you were the one that picked up his body. What was that like? Well, the reason for that was normally under, and I forget the county that Tara Hall's in, uh, they would do an autopsy on a executed prisoner. But people were offering money, and at times quite a bit of money, for pieces of McVeigh, hair, whatever. Wow. Uh, so the attorneys worked out a deal approved by the judge and approved by the government. And my job was to meet with McVeigh about 20 minutes before his execution and make sure that he was okay, that he had not been beaten or mistreated in any way, things that you might look for in an autopsy, and uh, then to take custody of his body after the execution and uh, have it taken care of. So there was a a decoy hearse. How did that work? Um, I don't remember if we set that up or the, uh, I think maybe we did, or the Bureau of Prisons. But what happened was there's, you know, the press likes to get shots of the hearse leaving the uh, Mm -hmm. uh, prison grounds. It's it's kind of like a perp walk uh, after the fact. But uh, we actually, uh, I took custody of his body and two uh, marshals, uh, U.S. marshals helped me put him in one of their vans uh, we dro- drove to the uh, a garage away from the death house. The thing that sticks out in my mind is I got out of the van, and there was a female CO in the garage, and she came up and put her arms around me and asked me if I was okay. Mm. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. It took yeah. a toll. I learned how... Th- it takes a toll on the correctional officers. Uh, we leave it to generally underpaid civil servants to carry mm-hmm. out 
Mm-hmm. These connoissances. And Mc, you know, McVeigh was an easy I, prisoner. We don't think about that. He was an easy prisoner. They liked him. He 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 would give him advice on security in the prison. Oh wow! You know, <laughs> that's pretty weird. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's it's just it's just sad. It's all the way around. There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing positive about any piece of this case. Sometimes you can find little things that are positive, but in this case, there just wasn't anything, was there? Well, you know, I interviewed some of the families of the victims, and some of them amazed me. Uh, There was one guy named Bud Welch who eventually reached out to Bill McVeigh prior to the execution, and I think, as I understand it, they have remained in contact, Mm. and some of Welsh's family was killed in the bombing. So you do see uh, glimpses of humanity, positive glimpses of humanity come forth, like the CO that came up and put her arms around me, you know? Yeah, right. I mean, she didn't have to do that. That's she didn't true. know me from Adam, you know. I mean, she knew why I was there and what my job was. Well, that's even more significant because she knew you were there. That's um, that's even more amazing, actually, because no matter how we cut it, you were, there's usually both sides that are kind of warring against each other. And the fact that she, you guys would, could connect like that was it's really very poignant. It was. It, it kind of it helped me make it through the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, w- did you take him to be cremated? Yes. Mm-hmm. So did to we, a, uh, we had you trouble were, fi- finding a funeral home that would accept him, and but we did find oh. one, and they cremated him and took two or three hours, and then they put him in a box and. Uh, me and one of my associates, my colleagues who had come out, headed back to uh, Terre Haute, where we spent the night. I mean, to mm-hmm. uh, Indianapolis, where we spent the night, yeah. and flew back to uh, Denver with his remains. Yeah. Well, Alice, we are at the end of our hour, but thank you. Um, gosh, thank you for sharing this uh, amazing story uh, that you were deeply involved in it. It was great having you on the show. Another episode has come to the end. And for you folks... Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for being on the show. And we should have you back on on another case, actually. Uh, Tune in again as we (coughs) declassify more real stories from real investigators like Ellis Armistead every Thursday morning. Uh, It's P.I.'s Declassified and Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening and thanks, Ellis. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program.